So Fred Sanders, uh, he's a th theologian who's known for writing a lot on the Trinity. Um, so this is his area uh, of expertise. And he wrote, the Trinity is like the Father sending the Son and the Spirit. Uh, that sounds very simple. The context of this, again, if you hadn't watched the video, uh, Fred Sanders begins to explain how we could understand the Trinity. Uh, there are a lot of analogies people have come up with to try to understand what the Trinity is. Um, uh, some famous ones is like you think of water, right? Water is water, H2O is H2O, but it could have three forms, solid, liquid, gas. Um, some point to the egg, the three parts of the egg, but still one egg. Um, and there's several different analogies like that, but hopefully at this point, you've heard at least some time in your life that it all those analogies come short, um, one way or the other. Uh, so, for example, um, think about the analogy of the egg. The shell isn't completely the egg all by itself. It would have to be in order to be a perfect analogy of the Trinity. The yolk is not completely the egg all by itself. Um, so Fred Sanders in this short video shows that all these analogies that we think of, when we think of the Trinity, fall short. So he encourages his students to not think of an analogy, but to think of the Trinity like this. And he says in this quote then, the Trinity is like the Father sending the Son and the Spirit. So for whether you're hearing this quote for the first time now or you watched it this past week, do you think this quote is helpful or do you think this is just as confusing as before you would have read it? You think it's more confusing. Lonnie thinks it's more confusing. Express oneness or unity. Okay. It just seems like the three persons sending people on missions. All right. Three persons, one of them sending the other to a mission. All right. You see one person sending the other to a mission. Um, so Lonnie is saying it doesn't sound like it's really explaining a little bit anything more about the Trinity. Uh, what are some other responses to this quote? Is that helpful? I just kind of feel like it's stating kind of the obvious of what God did. We know he sent the Son, and we know he sent the Spirit, but it doesn't explain anything to me. I just All right. already knew that. All right. Julie's <laughs> saying it's not adding anything. It's very simple. We already know that the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. All right. So... There's something very significant about this quote, I hope, for us to revisit near the end uh, to see what Fred Sanders is trying to do um, with this statement. Um, it is very simplistic, you're right on that, but at the same time, it's really everything we can say in the simplest form about what the triune God is like. Um, and like I said, we'll revisit it, so I'll explain it as we get going. So you can see there's four parts to this lesson tonight. Uh, first part, um, I thought it'd be good to start with the Bible. <laughs> so you can see the Bible and the Trinity, right? Last week, we learned 
that uh, the Bible is what is God's what type of revelation? Special, special revelation, right? We need to have special revelation uh, to know God in a manner that saves us. General revelation does not provide enough knowledge for us to be able to have salvation, to know the triune God in any uh, personal way. So we know we need to go to Scripture in order to know all the things we can know about who God is and that he is the Trinity. So the Bible and the Trinity. First question, as you can see on your note sheet, is how does the Bi- or what does the Bible say about the Trinity? And then the second question I have in this section how does the Bible make the Trinity known to humanity in history? Another way to ask this question, and probably a better way to ask this question, is how does the Trinity make himself known in history? Uh, the reason why I said how does the Bible make himself known, to show that the Trinity makes himself known through the Bible. Uh, all the meaningful things we can say about who God is is found in Scripture, in special revelation. So how does the Bible make the Trinity known to humanity in history? And when I say history, this is referring to all of human history, right? We're, as humans, on this timeline that's going nonstop, um, known as history, and God has made himself known all throughout history since the very beginning. So these are the two questions. You can see in the parentheses in each one, these are going to be important categories when we think about the Trinity. Uh, We have the ontological Trinity, um, that corresponds with the first question. I'll explain it. And then we have the functional trinity that corresponds with the second one. The ontological trinity is who is God in and of himself? Um, who is God? Uh, not asking what are the things God does outside of himself, but who is God? Um, so what does the Bible say about who God is in and of himself? Right? That's the first question. Second question, what does he do in history outside of himself? What does he functionally do in the world? Um, Also, quick note, it might help you. On the back side of your packet here, I have um, developing a theological vocabulary. I have some of these terms defined for you. Um, So you can see there's ontological slash imminent for the first one. I use those terms interchangeably. Uh, If you were to read a book on the Trinity, they use those terms interchangeably. Uh, And then you have the functional component I just talked about. You could also use that interchangeably with the economic Trinity. So you could see the ontological Trinity, the Trinity in and of itself, apart from creation and salvation, functional Trinity, God's operation outside of himself in creation redemption, uh, those sort of things. All right, so let's get to the actual questions. What does the Bible say about the Trinity? So number one, under the first question, number one, the Bible, the Bible's uh, Trinitarian language consistently identifies the Father, Son, and Spirit as one God. So number one, what does the Bible say about the Trinity? It says that there is only one God. Well, that sounds obvious. We know this. Christianity is a monotheistic faith. We don't believe in multiple gods. But it's important, right, to start by simply saying there's one God. Uh, There are many proof texts with this all throughout Scripture. Uh, Just, 
I'm going to list out a couple. We have De Deuteronomy 6.4 is probably one of the most popular ones. Deuteronomy 32.39, uh, Isaiah 44.8, 1 Corinthians this is a New Testament one, 1 Corinthians 8.6. Uh, these are just a few examples to point to simply that we believe in one God. Right? Who is our God? What does the Bible say? Or, yeah, what does the Bible say about our God? Um, about who the Trinity is? Um, he is one. All right, second, the Bible's Trinitarian language consistently distinguishes between the Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a difference within the Father, Son, and Spirit. So this is where it gets confusing, right? We say there's one God, but now we're making a distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit. So my question for you guys and I want to hear some of you guys' thoughts. How does the Bible distinguish the persons of the Trinity? So just thinking back in the ways you have been taught the Trinity or just God himself, you think about the Father, Son, and Spirit. How does the Bible distinguish between the different persons of the Trinity? Because this is an important question because it makes a big difference in how one answers this. No pressure, though. How does the Bible distinguish the different persons? It gives examples of different things they do. That's really good. So what's an example of something that one of the persons does that a different person in the Trinity does not do? Well, for the big answer, God created. Jesus died for us. And the Spirit lives in us. Okay. So we see different roles happening, right? The big one is Christ alone was the one who died on the cross for our sins. We see a distinct role there. Um, as it relates to creation, we'll get to this a little bit today and more in two weeks from now. Creation we see um, being the Father, Son, and Spirit all working together to accomplish creation. Um, and we will also see it's the Father, Son, and Spirit working together to accomplish redemption, salvation, but they do have distinct roles in that. All right. Um, how else are the different persons of the Trinity distinguished between each other? There is um, a nice term um, on the back side of your note sheet. It's, uh, it's number six under the definitions in the little glossary section. We have eternal relations of origin. So I will argue the only, this is significant, the only proper way you could distinguish the persons of the Trinity is how they um, eternally relate to each other. So what am I saying? I'm saying the Father, the Son, and Spirit are distinguished because the Father alone is Father. He is always Father because he's always had a Son eternally. Right? The Son is always the Son because he has a Father, and he's always been the Son eternally. The Spirit is the breath of God, the Spirit of God, and it always has been the spirit 
of God eternally. So the way they relate to each other is how you will distinguish them. Um, so again, that is uh, the eternal relations of origin, how they eternally relate to each other um, in their origin, uh, in going back to, the, to their origin there. So really quick, um, I don't want to get too in-depth with this, but the, uh, the eternal relations of origin is asymmetrical. As in, it starts with the Father, goes through the Son, and then is by the Spirit. The Spirit is never the first person of the Trinity, and the Father is never the third person of the Trinity. So it's asymmetrical. It can't go both ways. Um, and so, because it's always the Father sending the Son, and the Son and the Father sending the Spirit. Uh, so, um, also, so we have the distinguishing, distinguishedness between uh, the persons is the, their eternal relations of origin. I have another question for you guys. How do we see this mutual relationship? What do we see happening within this mutual relationship within the Trinity? Um, what is happening among them before creation itself? Have you guys ever thought of this? They're together. They work together to create the earth. There's something significant I'm trying to pull out. Um, what we see in God's function tells us something about his being, about who he is ontologically. So in John 17, 24, the whole gospel of John is very significant as it relates to how the Trinity is expressing himself. In John 17, 24, we are told that Jesus, as he's praying to God the Father, he's saying that before creation, before time began, you were loving me. Right? So we see the love of the Trinity existing amongst the Father, Son, and Spirit before time itself. So in 1 John, we see that it says God is love. Right? That's a statement of who God is. It's not just what he does and how he acts, but it's about who he is. So, if God was not Trinity, hypothetically speaking, before he created the world, who would have been there for God to have loved? God would not have been loving anyone. He could become loving, one could say, if he had created something, if he was not triune. Uh, but we see in 1 John, that's one of, a statement of who God is in and of himself, that he is love. So the very fact that God is Trinity shows that he is able to define that to himself because he's always been loving amongst himself. The Father has always been loving the Son. The Son has always been loving the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit has always been loving the Father and the Son. There's always been a mutual loving relationship that's existed in the Trinity. All right, so what does the Bible say about the Trinity? Those are a few things. Second question, how does the Bible make the Trinity known to humanity? Ooh, I need three volunteers to look up some Bible verses. Who wants to look up Ephesians 2.18? Julie. 
All right, I also need Galatians 4, 4 through 7. All right, Nancy wants to do that. Uh, and then Matthew 28, 19. Elizabeth. All right, so these three references here goes under the second question. How does, or, yeah, how does the Bible make the Trinity known to humanity in history? We're talking about the things God does outside of himself, the functional Trinity. So for the first one, the Trinity allows us or gives us the ability to come to God for worship. So Pastor Sam, right before we started this, he led us into some songs of worship. We're singing about the Trinity, right? We sing to the Trinity, but we also sing by the Trinity, in the Trinity. Um, So was it Julie? Julie? You want to read nice and loud for us Ephesians 2.18. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All right. So we see the inner inner workings of the distinct persons of the Godhead and our ability to come to God ultimately in worship. So it's through Christ In the Spirit, we have now access to God the Father. How do we get access to God the Father? Through Christ and by the Spirit. You cannot worship the triune God without the triune God. Our ability to worship, to respond to God, needs to be done in the Trinity. All right, next one. In the revelation of the Trinity, the gospel is found. The gospel is found in the Trinity, right? We wouldn't have the gospel apart from God being Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, who has Galatians 4, 4 through 7? All right. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law We see that because it's the second person in the Trinity, by the Father sending the Son, we're able to have sonship. Um, we're able to have salvation. And we receive the Holy Spirit who joins us to the Son so that we can now call the Father, Abba Father. Right? So it's very personal. And this is uh, where the gospel comes from, is through the Trinity making it available. All right, last one. Matthew 28, 19. This is part of the Great Commission. Right? Who owns that one? Elizabeth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right. So disciples are made and baptized in the name of the triune God. Right? See, that these are just a couple examples. We worship the Trinity by the Trinity. Uh, we receive the gospel and are saved by the Trinity, and we, are, we make disciples and are baptized in the Trinity. The Trinity is very foundational, as we could see just glancing over a couple passages, to our faith. Uh, if there was no doctrine of the Trinity, we would not 
have our God. We would not ha- God would not be... First off, if there was no Trinity, we wouldn't exist uh, since we wouldn't have been made. But what I'm trying to push is the doctrine of the Trinity is very foundational to our faith itself. Um, in this small book, uh, this was the book, um, if you had read the interview of the author writing a book on the Trinity, this was the book that he was writing. Uh, and I thought it was very significant that he said this. So he says, the purpose of Trinitarian theology, so this is a big statement, the purpose of Trinitarian theology, the point of Trinitarian theology is to fulfill our baptismal vow in petitioning, proclaiming, and praising God's triune name. So the, the point of us doing this and developing our theology, the doctrine of the Trinity, is to fulfill our baptismal vow we're vowing to God um, and then also to our church what we're doing as we're getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit when we're saved uh, by the gospel uh, of the Trinity. We're petitioning, proclaiming, and praising God's triune name. All right, so the Bible and the Trinity, there is one God, but also the Bible distinguishes the different persons of the Trinity. So that's the basic formula, right, of the triune God. There's one essence, one being, but yet distinct persons. Um, so I want to dive a little bit more into what all of that means. Uh, so point or second section on your note sheet, the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God. Has anyone ever heard of divine simplicity or God's attribute that he is simple in the sense? Is this um, I see Julie shaking her head no. Um, this is something that has not been discussed or talked about, I feel like, amongst evangelical Christians um, as of recent. It's becoming, uh, it's co- becoming more popular again. It's um, starting to be drawn out amongst some authors, uh, current authors. But divine simplicity, as you can see, here's a quote um, from someone who lived a long time ago, of course. Uh, and this quote, he is defining what it is. He is defining divine simplicity. And he says, it is not, he is not, he referring to God, he is not compounded of parts um, or of genus and spe- or, specie- or and species uh, or of substance and accident uh, or of potentiality and acts or in being, in essence. Um, I'm not necessarily going to break down each phrase there, uh, but what he is saying is God is not parts this, parts that, part this, but whatever God is, he is one of it, and he is pure. Who is God? God is spirit, and he is purely spirit. He is not made up of parts. Um, he does not, he is just different from us because he does not have a body and a soul. He is not made up of parts, right? Uh, he does not have um, different parts, like we have a foot, we have a hand, right? God is purely one. Um, he is not composed of genus and species. That's referring to that he is not 
God is not a greater, um, a greater version of creatures. He is completely distinct from his creatures. He is one in and of himself, and he is the only one of whatever he is. He is simply God. He transcends all categories, is what this is referring to. All different categories you might put on something to try to define whatever you're talking about. God can't be put in those type of categories. He transcends those categories. Um, God does not have potential for growth, for diminishment, or for change. God is unchanging. He doesn't have potential, like I said, for growth or to decline, whatever we may think of that. So we think of for us as humans, right? I hopefully will grow in my knowledge of God. I mean, we hopefully will grow in our knowledge of God. I could become more godly. That's my goal, right? We could become um, more godly. We could look more like Christ as we grow in our process of sanctification. That's not the same with God. Um, God is already perfect and complete in the way he is. So he does not grow. If we say God changed and got better somehow, we'll say, we would then have to say before he was not all, um, all good or he was not all wise because he's becoming more wise. Uh, So that's why we can't say he has any potential for growth or diminishing himself or changing at all. God is not composed of being or essence as well as the last statement says. Um, And that's simply referring to statements like where God says in Exodus 3.14, where he says, I am who I am, right? His very very being explains, uh, the whatness of God explains that, that he exists. So uh, what God is is the same as that God is. So let's try to bring this back down a little bit. Um, I know this could get very heady. Uh, Simply, divine simplicity is referring to God is one um, pure thing not made up of parts. We could keep it simple like that. God is not made up of parts. So when we think of God's attributes, God is holy, God is all-powerful, right? God is patient, God is loving. These aren't different things that you add up and say, this equals God. God's holiness is seen in his love, which is seen in his justice, which is seen um, in all of the different attributes. They're all referring to the exact same thing. They're not made up of parts. Therefore, God's attributes are not to be divided, and his eternal, external works are not to be divided. Listen to that again. I want you all to listen to this again. God's attributes are not to be divided, right? Because he is simple, divine simplicity. God's attributes are not to be divided, and his eternal works are not to be divided. Because who God is in and of himself, he is not a divided being. So therefore, his works and what he does in the world is not divided. Um, and we will get to that in a little bit. So, so 
it's separate and apart from him. Yes. So there, you know, I don't see where you, the logic flows because creation will go away. It's not co to be if complete is God. Yes. Then how can you say something that's not God is complete? I would. I don't mean to say that something that's not God is complete. Did I say that? Only God can claim that attribute. Only God is simple, and his works is simple. And when I say his works, I'm saying the things he does, um, not the things he's creating. So there's a difference between the created thing and the action in God doing the thing. So when you think of a builder building a house, right? the action of the builder um, is he's doing it, but he's building a house, but the house, the created object itself, well, by itself, right, is not the actions of God, but it's what he created. It's separate from the builder. So when you say works, that's mm -hmm. his actions, not yes. the consequence of his actions, the thing that he, the work is not the building. Correct. Yep. Yes. So the work is his, is creation and redemption. Those are generally the two, um, external works people look to when they talk about um, God's external works. Um, the act of creation, uh, not the creation itself. So that's a good distinguishing um, point that we need to make. Right? So divine simplicity is only attributed to God in and of himself, who he is, the ontological trinity, and then his function as well what he does. So the logic is, because God is undivided, what he does is undivided. All right. Any other clarifying points? I know it may not be clear, but we're talking about God. <laughs> All right. All right. So... This is a question you all should be asking, which is, how can God be simple if he is triple in person? Right? This is the question. How, God, how can God be simple of one thing, one pure thing, right, if he is triple in person? Does everyone understand the question at least? All right. So we're basically asking... What is the difference between his essence and his person? Because we would say he is simple in essence, in his nature, in his being, but he is three in his persons. So, what distinguishes, what's the difference between his essence and persons? That's, I think, the ultimate question when it comes to us trying to understand how God is one, yet three persons. Everyone following the, the question? So we have a quote here from Gregory of Nazianzus. I quoted him um, last time I taught, I think on week two. Um, but I think this is very helpful. Let's see what it says. It says, monotheism, so the belief in one God, Monotheism, with its single governing principle, is what we value. 
So this is what we're after as Christians. When we say we're a monotheistic faith, this is what we're after. Uh, monotheism is a single governing principle, not monotheism defined as a sovereignty of a single person. So when we say we are monotheistic, we're not saying that we are governed by a single sovereign person. We can't because we believe that our God is three persons, right? But what we are saying is that um, it's a single governing essence or principle or being. So let's continue with this quote. Um, Not monotheism defined as the sovereignty of a single person, but the single rule produced by equality of nature, harmony of will, identity of action, and the convergence toward their source of what springs from unity. So you can see he says there's a unity in three things here listed. In nature, will, and action. Again, action referring to the functional trinity, the things he does. And the convergence towards their source of what springs for, from unity. So these three, three things spring for, forth from God's unity, none of which is possible in the case of created nature. The result is that though there is numerical distinction, the three persons, there is no division in the substance. All right, so let me explain this a little bit. I know we have to put our uh, thinking caps on for this. The single rule that he says here in the beginning of the quote reflects a single nature, will, and action or operation, thing, something he does outside of himself. Right? The single thing principle that's um, governing us um, when we say we believe in the monotheistic God, we have an is referring to his essence or nature. We could use those synonymously. I'm using them synonymous, synonymously. Nature or essence. His will and his operation, the way he acts. The three persons um, are subsistences of the one divine essence or nature. So the three persons are the three um, ways he expresses himself in the one divine essence or nature so that the three persons, distinct as they may be, as the Father, Son, Spirit, will hold the one divine essence in common. All right. So, what I am saying is, many times, many times, people, even today, Christians, will dismiss the doctrine of the Trinity because they say, this doesn't make any sense. Right? We know 3 plus 3 plus 3 does not equal, I mean, 1 plus 1 plus 1 does not equal uh, 1, but it equals 3. Right? So there are many Christians um, back in history and even today who might completely just throw out the doctrine of the Trinity because it just absolutely does not make any sense. But what they are missing, and I want you guys to see this, is we are not saying that uh, the the Father, Son, and the Spirits, the three and the one, are the exact same thing. Um, We are not saying uh, that the oneness of God is the same thing as the threeness of God. Think about that. 
the oneness of God, whatever we mean when we say that God is one, is not the same as what we refer to then when we say God is three. We're referring to different things. If we were referring to the same thing, we would be contradicting ourselves, uh, and we would have to throw out that doctrine. All right? So listen again. When Whatever we mean when we say that God is one is different than what we mean when we say God is three. When I say, when we say God is one, we are referring to his essence, his will, and his action, right? God is one nature, and therefore he has one will, and therefore he does one action. But when we say whatever we mean when we say he is three, we are referring to the way he uh, we're referring to his persons in the way um, the subsistence of God, uh, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so remember uh, in the beginning when I said, what is this thing that distinguishes between the Father, Son, and Spirit? We're referring to their eternal relation of origin. So again, go back to um, the glossary on the note sheet. Look at number five, subsistence. This will help us. I want you guys to be looking through these to help us um, as we talk about the Trinity. Another way to refer to a divine person, the one single divine essence subsists or exists in three persons. Each person is a subsisting relation of the divine essence. So what we mean when we say God is one, we're referring to his essence his will, and his operation or his action. But when we say that God is three, we're referring to his person, his, the way he um, subsists or his subsistence um, in, filling, in accomplishing his actions, his will. Um, yes? So in John, when, John when Jesus gets baptized... Yeah. And we, so we have the three persons there, but we also have the one action of God. Mm-hmm. So it's both? Yeah. Can that be an example of both there? Yeah. I mean, we see the action, of, uh, the example of one action of God completely all throughout Scripture, and we'll get to that. Um, but the baptism of Christ is a great example of where we see um, all three persons of the Trinity working together to honor the Son. Um, where the Father says, this is my son, and who am I am well pleased, right? And we see the Holy Spirit coming down as a bird um, with, this, with the son being baptized there. And so you see their unity there in that text. Um, and I don't want to jump the gun either in showing exactly how we see his external operations or his external actions working in unison, but we will talk immensely about that um, as time comes. That will be mostly in two weeks from now. Um, and so, quick to simplify, I know a lot of this isn't very simple, even though we're just talking about divine simplicity. Um, God's one action and his one will in salvation itself, we see it as the Father sends the Spirit, I mean, the Father sends the Son, Right, uh, and the Son sends the Spirit in order to bring us salvation. So the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. 
right? The Son initiates salvation, the Son accomplishes it, and then the Spirit applies it. We see it's one action, um, one act of the Trinity for redemption. So that's an example of redemption. Um, Applies. The Spirit applies. The Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and Spirit applies it. And that's an example of God's work. Yes. Yeah, in his external works. Um, and redemption is the easiest category to apply that to. So we distinguish th- between essence, being, or nature over here. That's what we mean when we say God is one, his will, his action, all of those things. But we distinguish that from his person or subsistence. And that's what we refer to when we say he is three. All right. So the simplicity of God, right? God is not made up of parts. He is one uh, pure spirit, uh, one pure thing, not distinguished between different components to make him up. And he's not changing at all because of that. All right. The persons of God, number three. That's where we are. I need everyone to take a big breath. <sighs> Let it out. All right. This is, this is heavy stuff. Um, and this is something we ought to be wrestling through. We should be wrestling through because, as we learned last week, God has revealed himself to us in a special way through his word. This is the Trinity that we worship, right? And he has made himself known for us to be able to say these things, say truthful things about him. And that's what we're after, saying truthful things about who he is. Um, And not going beyond the things that he has revealed to us about himself, but sticking to the things he has revealed to us about himself and rightly proclaiming that, explaining that, and that's what we're after with this. So does anyone want me to go over anything from point from the first part or the second part so far on this note sheet before we move on to the third part? I'm learning that this is a lot harder to explain. <laughs> when I was writing this out, I'm like, this is great. I have it all figured out. I know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to say. Um, but it is, it is difficult to work our minds around, um, but it's something that I think is very beneficial for us to do. So we're on now the persons of God. We talked about the simplicity of God. That's highlighting his unity, right? Now we're going to talk about the distinct persons, more so of the, the threeness of God. All right, the persons of God. Um, let me see. So you get to see, I wrote, eternal relations of origin. We already talked about that. Um, that is what distinguishes the, the different persons within the Godhead. Again, what makes the Father different from the Son? Well, the fact that he is Father, right? How he relates to the Son. What makes the Son different from the Father? Well, he is Son. 
he has always been son to the Father, right? So how they relate to each other, and the Spirit is always the Spirit as well. So you can see on your note sheet, I wrote, the so first point, the Father alone eternally begets the Son. Um, and then we could see the Son alone is eternally begotten or generated uh, by the Father. And then lastly, the Spirit alone is eternally spirated. I did not make up this term, even though um, Google, I'm not Google, um, my Word document thinks it's spelt wrong. It's not. Um, the Spirit alone is eternally spirated, and you can see I wrote in parentheses, breathed out by the Father and Son. So that's what we mean when we say, when I say spirated. He's breathed out the breath of God um, by the Father and the Son. So this is how they relate to each other. If you want to know what the um, eternal relations of origin, how they relate to each other are, what that looks like, these three points here simply shows that, right? The Father alone eternally begets the Son. The Son eternally is begotten by the Father, and the Spirit alone is eternally spirated uh, by the Father. All right, so that is who God is in, of, is in and of himself, the ontological component. How, what does this then tell us of how God acts functionally or economically? So I want to make the point that who God is internally is how then he acts, he demonstrates who he is externally. So we could say something like this. The Father alone eternally begets the Son, therefore all things originate or come from the Father. In creation, in the way we see God act in history, in the way he interacts with humanity, all things originate or come from the Father. Because this is who the Father is. Who is the Father? The Father alone is um, the one who uh, alone eternally begets the Son. He is the originator of the Son. How, with the Son being eternally begotten, right, with the Father, not saying that the Son was ever created. We're not, of course, we're not saying that, but the Son is eternally begotten. So the Father alone eternally begets the Son. Therefore, in creation now, we could apply that. Therefore, all things come from the Father. Um, so when you think of the love we receive from God, right, the grace we receive when we're saved, all of this is originated flows out of the fountainhead of the Trinity, but is originated from God the Father, coming from God the Father, because the Father is the one who begets the Son. Second one, the Son alone is eternally begotten by the Father. Therefore, what does this tell us about the Son? In history, functionally, therefore, therefore, all things come through the Son. Therefore, all things come through through the Son. The Father is the one sending the Son, eternally begets, because the Father eternally begets the Son, we see then in history, the Father is the one sending the Son, because the Son's always generated, coming from the Father. Therefore, all things come through the Son. And lastly, the Spirit. 
The Spirit alone is eternally spirated or breathed out by the Father and Son. That's who God is in and of himself. So how do we see him in history? Functionally, we see him. Therefore, all things come by or in the Spirit. All things come by or in the Spirit. And so this is how I applied Chris when we're talking about redemption. Um, We're saved uh, from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. That's the order it comes in. From the Father, originated from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who applies it to us because ontologically who God is in and of himself, this is the order we see God existing from all eternity. The Father has always been the Father, always begetting the Son. The Son has always been the Son, always been begotten by the Father, and the Spirit has always been the Spirit being spirated or breathed out by the Father and the Son. And this is why then it's the Father and the Son sending the Spirit in redemption history, right? Uh, When he acts outside of himself functionally. All right, that was a lot. Um, Is this somewhat make sense? (laughs) I think it confuses a lot. It's confusing a lot. All right. One, most of the time I say, where is these coming from scripture? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this would get, you know, we, 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 we reformat what the word begotten is. Mm-hmm. So that gets confusing. You know, I'm thinking begotten, you know, was, was, you know, what we think is begotten is how he came from heaven to earth. Now we have an eternally begotten, but he existed in eternity, so how was he begotten if in eternity he's always existed? Yes. And so that eternally begotten is now a new phrase to confuse the daylights out of me as I listen to this going, and then the, the things, it seems like a philosopher has sat down and has thought on these things a lot, Yeah. but I don't know in my mind how should I value this? Is this guy a script? Was he spirit-filled when he wrote this? Or was this just another human sure. thinking these things and just writing these down and we're all going, huh? So, because, like, you know, like, you know, so that, that, that's just my, my thought. Yeah. Versus the scripture supports the Trinity. Yeah. And there have, scripture has things about the Trinity that we definitely know. So let me ask someone else in here. Why would we say the Son has always eternally been begotten by the Father? Does anyone want to try to? Is this like explaining like in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God? Like. Well, that explains the eternity part, right? Before creation itself, the Word was with God and was God. So that explains that he is eternal. Um, but the term that we use, it sounds like what Lonnie's uh, confused about, is why would we use eternally begotten from the Father? 
It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he gave, you see the idea of sending, and what is the second person of the Trinity called there in that verse? Son. The adjective is begotten. Yes. So we see the idea that second person of the Trinity is always referred to as the Son of God who is begotten by the Father, as you're saying, um, who is always coming from the Father. The Father... Even in that part, in that time, Christ hadn't assumed a human nature himself, right? Um, that's a really good discussion, um, and it's a big discussion, but we're not necessarily going to go there. Um, so besides talking about what does it mean to be made in the image of God, right? And there's a, a lot that could be said there. Um, so what I'm arguing for and what I want us to be thinking about that I believe scripture uh, explains that God is who he is before creation, eternally past. He's the same as he has expressed himself to us today. Right? What is something we've learned about God? God is unchanging. Right? He's always been the same. There's always been the Father always been the father called the father there's always been a son called the son there's always been a spirit of um, the father and the son um, amongst them before time itself and remember we pointed to a passage in uh, john 17 um, where jesus said before the creation of the world the father was loving his son um, and so this is why we're saying the things in eternity past, God has always been these things in and of himself, and he has expressed that then to us in history. Like what about like Hebrews 1, 5, where it says, you're my son, today I've begotten you, or again, it says, well, he, let me go back. For which of the angels did God say, uh, for you, my son, today I've begotten you, or again, I will be a father, and he will be my son, and again, it says, the firstborn of the world, he says, that all God's angels worship him. Is that kind of the whole begotten part? Is that getting to where it's like yeah. eternally? Yeah. And I think the crux of the matter really is we're saying he's not just begotten eternally forward, but he's always been begotten eternally past. Um, and going back... There's a definition here on number three on your glossary on begotten. This might help us a little bit. Uh, and when I'm referring to it as begotten, I'm defining it as to come forth or to proceed, right? To come forth or to proceed. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father's essence. Only the Son is begotten. Um, another term that's commonly used is eternal generation. He's eternally been generated from the Father. So, 
Lonnie, did you have in mind um, this definition when you asked the question begotten, um, that he has always eternally come forth or is preceded from the Father? Do you, are you familiar? Before you redefine begotten, yeah. I would have defined it as, as God produced, that's how God had brought the eternal Jesus that existed beforehand to earth. Sure. Because the Spirit came upon Mary. It didn't say eternally came upon Mary, and then she, she conceived sure. and was with child. Yeah. You know, so uh, uh, when you're talking about that, if it would have been anybody else, begotten would have been what we normally know as birth for any uh, yeah. other, other person. KJV, he begot. <laughs> yes. The dictionary defines it as to give rise or bring about the, so not necessarily the born. Yeah, yeah. and so there's, there's a distinction, remember, we're talking about um, first who he is in and of himself, then expresses that is expressed in the way he shows himself in history. So, of course, we can't say he eternally begot by Mary, because Mary is not eternal, necessarily. I mean, of course not, right? She's a cre creature, just like the rest of us. Um, but because there's the Father um, has always been the Father, he's always been, there's always been the Son who's coming from the Father, so I guess it's from the names themselves shows or demonstrates that the son is originated from the father. And I say that I'm referring to proceeds from the father as the son is always but originated if, but from the father. But if he's always existed, how did he proceed from? Yeah. I'm having an infinity plus one type thing where there's, that's the, the from uh, versus I would say he was eternally was the father. You know, he he had the spirit was eternally was the father with the father. They were eternally, you know, they were always existed. It was not a proceed from. Sure. They are. Okay. Yeah. And so that's what I would. I, I would encourage you then to uh, just read through, and this is part of the reflection for this lesson. Read through Ephesians or John seventeen. Um, and reflect slash journal how the sun works through the sun, right? And just look at the language uh, that the sun uses to refer to the Father and how he comes from the Father. And he even refers to et in eternity past, right, in that language. Is it in eternity past there or before the foundation of the world there? Yeah, well, that's assumed, right? Uh, before the foundations of the world. <laughs> Who's assuming here? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the eternity of God and the idea that he can never change, right? In the way he, he is. Um, so it gets, it gets tricky to the point of we can't discuss a lot of things before the creation of the world, right? Um, whatever it was before the creation of the world, then we have to assume because God has always been it's always been that way before in eternity past. Whatever God is now, he always was in eternity past, and he always will be in eternity future forward. Um, so we could, we could talk more about it. We're talking about the Trinity for the next two weeks. Um, so that's good. Uh, so we'll get back to that.
And I know we're running out of time because of this discussion, which is good. Um, but quickly, I want to just go over these three things with you guys, three mistakes in understanding the persons of the Trinity, just really quickly, um, since, like I said, we're running out of time. Three mistakes. Uh, modalism is considered a heresy uh, by the church at large, and we could talk more about this in weeks to come. Modalism's claim the three persons are merely different modes of God's interaction with the world. They highlight the unity of God, but they um, they don't believe in the, dis the, the distinct persons of God. They highlight the unity of God, but they um, deny the distinct persons of God. So they claim, again, you can write this on the line, they claim that three persons are merely just different modes of God's interaction with the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit are the same. The Father acts like the Father sometimes, then he changes modes. He acts like the Son sometimes. He changes modes and acts like the Spirit sometimes. That's modalism. Subordinationism denies that the second and third person are one God with the Father. They see that the Son and the Spirit seem to be subordinate to the Father, and so therefore they can't be of the same essence of the Father, with the Father. So they deny that the second and third persons of the one God, are, they deny that they're the same God with the Father. And then we see eternal functional subordination. Um, again, this is the whole etern eternal idea, right? Functionally, the works of God, right? So we could start putting, uh, piecing this together, what this might mean. Eternally, functionally, um, eternal functional subordination. What you could write on that line they distinguish the persons by means of relations of authority and submission. So remember, we distinguish the persons by, re, um, by how they relate to each other relationally. Uh, they distinguish the persons by authority and submission. That the son is uh, subordinate to the Father, and therefore the Father alone has authority and uh, giving out his authority to the Son and the Spirit. And there you see almost distinct wills as well. The will of the Son and the Spirit are bowed down to the Father. And if there's distinct wills, then we're getting more into distinct agencies and then almost into distinct gods there. All right, quickly, one God, three persons in action. Um, we see works of creation, works of redemption. We talked briefly about this. We'll talk a lot more about it in two weeks. The external works of God. Um, so we see that predominantly in creation and redemption. And remember, it's one work from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Um, the Spirit is applying the work of the Father in the Son, by the Son, or through the Son, I should say, um, in creation and redemption. All right, so uh, look through those six terms. Um, this will help in our discussion. Um, see how they're defined there. Uh, preparation for next week, there's an article. Uh, I've had it on the back table. 
It's more about the attributes of God, the attributes of who God is in and of himself. We're talking about the ontological trinity next week. Uh, And then you can see reflection, as I had already said earlier.